The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another installment of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that we have been trying to promote on the program in the interest of archaeology and preservation and just historic context for what we do, is to look at the interface between archaeology and preservation and media, and specifically, uh, all, well, all sorts of media, but with an emphasis recently on audiovisual and, in particular, films and television productions. Uh, one of our recent programs looked at the Sons of Liberty, which is a History Channel store, uh, reconstruction of the American Revolution. And today we are going in a slightly different direction, but we're also pinpointing a major historic production called The Vikings. And we are very delighted to have with us the production designer of the Vikings, who is a very well-known and established Emmy Award-winning production designer, and that is Tom Conroy. Tom has designed numerous films, including East is East, Intermission, Inside I'm Dancing, and The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone. He has also engaged and designed a number of television programs, The Tudors, Camelot, Titanic, Blood and Steel, and of course The Vikings, which is the topic of our, our discussion today. He has uh, won, won numerous awards, including Emmy Awards, uh, a Gemini Award from the Canadian Academy, Academy, and a number of awards from his native Ireland. Tom, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for appearing. Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with how you got involved in historic set design and production, and what were your motivations for doing that sort of thing? Well, it's partly, I guess, sort of the, the way the cookie crumbles a little bit. I mean, in a sense, I might have gone back to, uh, I went to film school in the National Film and Television School in the UK, just outside London. 
And uh, we did a Google short story called The Nose, and we built a sort of 1930s barber set. We set it in London, 1930s. And we did exteriors in London, but we um, built a, a, for the main action, we, we built a set. And uh, sometimes when I look back, I think that one thing that I did um, sort of pointed the way. I mean, I enjoyed it. I've always had a huge interest in history and archaeology as well and generally uh, and all sorts of different things that go into uh, making you a production designer and um, anyway on the Google short story to knows we built the set and it was uh, the first sort of proper set I built historic set I built for a film and um, uh, didn't the and this, was, the, this was when Oh, this would be twenty-five years ago, thirty years ago. <laughs> I because don't because what's interesting about that is the Metropolitan Opera produced the nose last year. It was the first production of yes, that. Is that were you involved? You weren't involved in that, though, no. were you? Oh, okay. Well, it's it's just been revived, so that's quite quite an interesting connection. I'm sorry. Anyway, so you went from doing that to so so, but that. Um, uh, strangely got me a lot of notice because it was um, an unusual set and it was, I guess, expressionistic in a way and it was also um, right in the middle of the film school and to get from one end of the film school to the other, you had to grow, go through the uh, the stage. One, one, They had two stages, one big one and um, the sort of set was up there for a couple of weeks so a lot of uh-huh. people saw it. And in a funny sort of way then... You know, you go on, you do whatever comes along. Um, I, I was an assistant for a while, uh, and I ended up being an assistant on um, uh, period productions. And then uh, I did a few contemporary things, but people remembered me for doing that set. And then I started getting asked to do more, not deep historical things, but things like East is East that you mentioned in the intro, which is a beautiful film, really recommend it for anybody to look it up. Uh, set in 1970 in the Asian community in Britain, who mm-hmm. just you know, assimilated there. And it was about the kind of, it's actually about an Asian guy and an Irish woman who were married, and about their children and about the problems of assimilation or identity and all that kind of stuff. So I really enjoyed doing East is East, which was political with a small p and very very much rooted in its time a time of change in in britain and uh, that became quite successful and again sort of got me noticed and in the way these things happen (laughs) people look at uh, films that are successful and think oh who did that oh let's get him to do that and one thing sort of leads leads to another yeah Um, but i am not complaining (laughs) of course not but it's a word of mouth kind of situation it's a sort of word of mouth it's um i guess everything is word of mouth in some ways even in these this computer media age but um the film and television business is still very much about uh your word of mouth and your reputation in in the sort of uh the world that we we work in of course and so uh, then that got you going, and you would you say that you sort of got classified or categorized as somebody who is excellent in historic set production? I Yes. Um, I still, I mean, to be honest, the last drama piece I've done that's contemporary was 1990, sorry, 2005. Uh-huh. So that's a good 10 years ago since I've done anything that's uh, been contemporary. <laughs> 
Um, and uh, that was actually a very interesting project. It was for the BBC, um, just a sort of one-off drama, television drama for them, called right. Shiny, Shiny, Bright New Thing. And it was about the sort of uh, the boom and everything just before the crash and about somebody who's obsessed with um, getting more um, uh, accruciments and more stuff. Uh, but but since then, um, it's I, I went from that uh, directly into um, uh, I think uh, yes, straight into the tutors, and uh, so that was quite deep historical, you know, sixteenth um, century, uh, all the power machinations of Henry VIII, and of course, all of that. yes, I remember that. So when you do that, when you engage in this kind of research, you have a lot of research to do and you have a lot of interaction, I assume, with script writers and production people and actors and uh, camera folks. And, and obviously all of you have to do a fair amount of historic research, but probably you in particular because you have to reconstruct sets and uh, you have to reconstruct costumes and sets and landscapes. And how do you do that? How do you uh, how do you know where to start? Do you actually go to museums or do you consult with archaeologists or historians? What's the process involved in this? Well, the process is is um, there's usually uh, especially on TV series you might not have all the scripts. You usually have one sort of sample script, which is will end up being a pilot. Um, you have a, la- a kind of rough outline of what direction the series will go. And then you just jump in. And in the tutors, uh, in that case, I was actually was living in London at the time. So I um, just got my little uh, two-and-a-half-year-old son, put him in the car. And we went and we saw, I'd say, every historic you know, house from that period and castle in a 50-mile radius of London. Um, wow. Heaver Castle, Penshurst, Leeds Castle. There's, my goodness. There's dozens and dozens. And the great thing about the um the english is that they uh really do preserve their history um and you know there are absolutely amazing places you can just walk into and it is more or less what it would have been like um in in the time and the other point to to uh, make is that uh, the production designer is often the first person on to the production apart from the producer and a few other kind of production people. So we often come way before the rest of the crew. And the first few weeks is really just getting, as you said, getting all that research, getting that um, um, information. Because we're not, by definition, an expert in any of these things. So I become, I, I get to know a subject quite well, not in an academic sense, but uh you know, in in the sense, I I need to learn as much as is material to what I'm doing, and in a way, what I'm trying to do is, uh, you know, create the sort of material world so that the the actors and then eventually the audience uh, can inhabit that and and literally sort of uh, immerse themselves in it. So it's everything from. You know, knowing what sort of knives, forks, cutlery, what's the wall coverings? Would have been anything on the uh, any you know curtains, or would it have been shutters? Um, what were the gardens like? What sort of plants do they have? Uh, how do they light things? How do they keep warm? Um, how did it get from A to B? Um, all of those kind of things. So you just 
you, because in a sense, any film or TV, any drama is making a parallel reality, which might be set in the future. And it might be parallel to today, uh, but in a world perhaps that you know we don't normally go into, whether it's you know high finance in Wall Street or of a course, African yeah. village. Um, and whatever the subject is, you, you're trying to make a, a parallel world that will convince the audience and, uh, you know, it, not just visually, but also emotionally. And that's an important point to make, because I think what I do is get a lot of information. and it's, I sort of sift through it in my head and do lots and lots of sketches and drawings and uh, pull together references and talk, obviously, to um producers and the right the showrunners at this point on a television series there usually isn't a director they they kind of come in earlier uh, later so you know myself and the showrunner or the, the writer in say the case of the um the tutors that was michael hurst and we developed a really close relationship working relationship and uh um almost to a point of having sort of a shorthand and he's the same chap who wrote the Vikings as well. So, you know, we've gone on to keep collaborating. So when it's you, an immersive... When you do that, yeah, no, it, it is. But I, I, I don't want to cut you off. I just am sure. trying to visualize how the steps work. I mean, it sounds to me that you are at the ground floor, really, of compiling the historic research and that you have to put it together essentially yourself. Uh, are you doing this with a team? Do you have a group of people that you work with to accumulate all all this information how does that how does that mesh yeah i i do have a um a team people that I regularly work with and uh i usually start off very small it might be only two or three of us um and we would all jump in and what i generally do is sort of we'd we'd hive it off so maybe one person would do carriages and boats and things like that vehicles of all things uh, i would tend to do a lot of the architectural stuff um what we also then get is slightly later we'll get the um, set decorator will join us and uh, they're the person who do, deals with the nitty-gritty of you know do they have knives do they have forks um you know what way what side of the plate were they on <laughs> all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff so they'll they'll jump into that so it's kind of increasing layers of complexity and it's quite a structured process um so we uh even though we never do the same thing twice we kind of know how to um to uh, engage in it you know um, oh, well, to jump that, into it. that's what i'm getting at getting at i mean it, it it sounds like you're the first person who probably has to figure out uh, what all the nodes are when uh, when you get sort of the uh, that uh, for lack of a better word uh, an infrastructure go going you're going to say okay we need to get as you said before carriages we need to get knives and forks we you know we have to get certain kind of landscapes and for the outdoor scenes is that how it works and then yes eventually yes. Put so together for, a for instance the, the vikings would be a very good uh, case in point of that because we had a little sort of um a time when uh um the two companies, History and MGM, who were behind the Vikings, they were, you know, quite seriously considering it, but they hadn't made up their minds. So uh, the Irish producer um, decided it'd be good for us to do a little feasibility study and to kind of um, try and show them, yes, it could be done in Ireland. You know, uh, you don't have to go to Norway to do something like this. And um, so I went around and photographed locations and. Uh, you know, and obviously you're trying to sell something, so you know 
I'd wait for one of the rare sunny days over here. And luckily that uh, autumn, there were some nice sunny days. And I had the idea that we, we have quite near to Dublin, where we're based, um, is a beautiful county called County Wicklow. And it has some beautiful, really beautiful lakes. Now, they're not fjords in the um, style of Norway, but they're quite rocky, quite wild. And uh, I kind of felt that, well, with a little of, bit of help from the visual effects department, they could top up the uh, mountains, but you would get most of your show uh, actually filming in the real landscape. So that was an important kind of part of that project to actually find the landscapes and, you know, put a document together. And I did sketches as well of how we could build villages and um, small towns and the look of their different um, things as well. And uh, that went in and thankfully they kind of, the the, the um, uh, producers, MGM and History Channel uh, decided to go for it. And then it became a more deeper sort of research process, um, which included like, how do we build the boats? How do we you know, do all those sort of, uh, all those kind of things? I want to get back into that uh sort of nuts and bolts of developing the set and production of the Vikings. And we will continue our discussion with Emmy Award production designer, Mr. Tom Conroy, after these words. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick-and-mortar locations or traditional bankers' hours. Today, banking is 24-7. It's in the home. It's on the go. It's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust, changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and, of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in Tuesdays and join the credit master and consumer advocate, Mr. D, a.k.a. Bruce J. Danielson, and learn the whole truth about credit risk scoring, collectors, both kinds, credit bureaus, credit cards, tax liens, mortgages, and much more. Find out how to use accountability combat to protect yourself from becoming a victim and to fight back against corporate abusers, such as banksters who have taken unfair advantage of most of us. The Consumer Fightback Show educates consumers on how to find relief within today's onerous credit system. See you Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. You're 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are back. This is Joe Schildenrein with, with my special guest, uh, Mr. Tom Conroy, who is an Emmy Award-winning uh, set designer for a number of historic productions, most recently and most popularly, The Vikings, which has been a long run, uh, a, a continually running series for the past year or so uh, on, on the History Channel. And Tom, I, I want to get into... The Vikings itself, you had talked about using a uh, landscape from uh, not very far from, from Dublin. And you know, archaeologically, I mean, the Vikings certainly made their imprint on the British Isles. So it's not a far stretch to, um, to actually stage your sets over there. It's, it's, it's logical. Most people, as you had indicated earlier, seem to just say, well, everything has to be staged in Norway or uh, their only uh, movements were in Norway. But in fact, they went everywhere and they made it to the new world as well. So uh, I guess that, that the set that you have sort of in your own backyard is, is very, very reasonable, I guess. Yes, because obviously, as you say, the, 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 bigger arc of the story was about their raiding. So where were they going to raid? Britain, Ireland, France. And uh, so far we've done those three three countries or three territories. And um, uh, But, you know, as people who watch the uh, series, you'll see, uh, I mean, the visual effects were done by a, a company called Mr. X are really, really good and absolutely seamless and to the point where sometimes I look and try to think, well, where do we do that? Because <laughs> you kind of forget um, uh, sometimes for some of the uh, scenes. Um, and also film production, TV production is a lot about logistics. You're trying to keep things as close together as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, but even then we had to, to, to get to the film in these beautiful valleys. I had to persuade the pr- producers that I thought this was absolutely the right thing to do. But uh, we had put in a road um, of about three kilometers, uh, which uh, so just a sort of a dirt road, but, um, you know, it had to be done, cost a fair bit of money. And more importantly, we had to put in a bridge to uh, a particular part of the valley. And uh, that had to take uh, um, uh, not big vehicles, but small vehicles to go across it as well as people. And then because the whole area... Um, as you would expect, is a sort of preserved area. It's a sort of area of scientific interest. Of course, uh, yeah. And uh, so we had to get special permission from the uh, parks authorities to allow us to do that. But one of the provisos was that at the end of every season, we had to take out the bridge, which is and the entire set. So the set you see, if anybody watches the Vikings, if you see the sort of the dockland area of the um, Kattegat, the sort of Viking town, mm-hmm. it, year that gets taken down and every year it gets put back up again <laughs> how long does it take to do that oh it takes about six weeks it's quite a job um you know uh i mean it took longer the first year because we had to build everything from scratch but we we were aware of this so we built it in a kind of modular sort of system and uh it goes together like a kind of giant lego kit but it's still a lot of work to to do it um 
And then at the end of the whole process, we take it all apart, take it away. And uh, the location manager would go along the beach and the, the area with this contraption he's made up, uh, which has got wheels on it. It looks like a kind of old-fashioned lawnmower. And it's a giant magnet, a super magnet, a really uh-huh. strong one. And just that's just to get up all the um, you know the screws and the various fixings that have got lost into the grass and the bracken and stuff like that. You know, so uh, and you actually don't notice it, you know, because I've been back a few winters um, just to have a look around. It was a very beautiful area, and right. never ever know that we were there. And then come the spring, um, we do it all over again. <laughs> now, how many seasons have you been running? It's uh, been running for three seasons, and uh, they're we are waiting. They're waiting for the fourth, uh, the the approval for the fourth season. So they should know that fairly soon. Uh, when you when you're building these sets, and obviously now it's uh, I'm not going to say it's routine, but you know exactly what you're doing. Are you there the entire time? Um, well, what what happens is that certainly areas, uh, ones that we've done before, I would be there less. I would go and I'd supervise the sort of, you know, maybe the, the laying out. And also what happens is that we're traveling through time, so things change. Um, so, you know, we're not, it's not exactly the, the same as the first one. So, you know, we want to see a bit of development in their kind of material culture and what's happening. And, uh, and generally, as a sort of note, what we've done for the seasons of the Vikings, as they've gone raiding they're becoming more wealthy they're bringing back more material goods so we're seeing the evidence of more gold more silver more uh, uh um, fabrics and different things that they uh, would have started to trade as well so that's another aspect and that ex- that goes for the uh, interior sets as well you had made mention of of the boat construction and yes. from what i'm what i've seen and we have spoken actually to a number of Norse and uh, Viking archaeologists, and it just seems that you have done a remarkable job reconstructing or building the sets as and the boats in particular uh, in conjunction with uh, what is known actually about uh, boat construction for that time frame. I mean, you're looking at AD around 1000 at this point, right? I mean, that's that's, that's well, a little bit earlier. We can we start a little off bit. In, yeah, 18. Right. Sorry, eight. 84 i think um right but yeah so we there's a you know a lot of information out there um uh i have a wonderful book uh called the ship from a chap called uh sorry landstrom a right. swedish chap and uh that's got some beautiful illustrations in it and then i uh i went to a few museums and uh the uh i think it's the roskilde museum in denmark mm-hmm. uh, where they have a lot of uh, beautiful boats that they've recorded, they've uh, managed to, to uh, find and then preserve. And um, all the museums have very good websites as well, where uh, I got a lot of information from. Um, but the boats were interesting because uh, there were practical things we had to think about. And uh, the, the original boats were anything from sort of, you know, 30 feet long to... I think the biggest ones would have been about 120 feet. Um, and we looked at what we needed and what we could do. Uh, one of the things we had to realize, we realized that we wouldn't just be using the boats in one place. They had to be, a- be able to move because we would be in the sea, we would be in these lakes, we would be in rivers. So we decided we would try and set up um, 
you know what the parameters were for moving boats around um, the country. And we quickly find out, found out that basically if you had a load more than 56 feet long, uh-huh. uh, more than 12 feet high, and I think more than, I think, nine feet wide. Um, so I'm rough because we do in metric, so I'm translating. Of course, yeah. But it's yeah. roughly that sort of size. Um, once you're within that size, it's much easier. Once you go bigger than that, you have to close down roads. You have to get special permissions. You have to do all sorts of different things. So uh, that was our kind of template. So we sort of worked backwards from that. And we, uh, myself and one of my assistants, we drew up the um, the plans uh, to sort of fit that in and also talk about what sort of trailer we need to put the boat onto and uh, how we would actually move it around. And uh, there were some parts that we realized in order to get through sort of narrow gateways and things, we, we made in the cradle that the boat went onto, the big boat, uh, right. we, we put some hydraulic um, lifts onto it. So the whole boat would lift up about, uh, I think, about four or five feet just so we could get through gateways and things like that. Um, and then it would go down for the more general, uh, you know, ordinary, bigger bigger roads. And it goes down the tiniest little roads. Uh, and this lake I've been talking about, which is called uh, Loch Tay in County Wicklow, there's the tiniest road to get down there. And it was literally, the, there was a, a gatepost where we actually asked, could we demolish the gatepost and we'll... we'll um, build it back again and they said no so uh, that's how the uh, the hydraulic lift uh, got invented but it turned out to be quite useful for other places um and uh, yeah uh, so so the whole thing was a logistical um um exercise as well but i quite enjoy that part of what we do um i enjoy the sort of challenge of you know making the sort of square pe- peg fit into the round hole and um how you know, there's a million and one different things. It's almost sort of slightly mathematical or it's certainly the, about logistics. And uh, it's a kind of part, as well as the the artistic part, the colour, the drawing, the shape, the form. I mean, designers have to kind of grapple with all of these practical things as well. Of course. You had mentioned that, uh, and, and we see it on the, on the show as it progresses, that, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, you are moving. I mean, the, uh, the Vikings are moving around. Their raids are going, uh, I, I suspect, more farther and farther west and, and, and moving a bit south a little bit as well. Uh, yeah. Do you simply have the same set? Are you able to use that area in, uh, that you had mentioned in the vicinity of London, uh, Dublin rather, or, or have you actually moved physically to different locations and how far are they away? Well, what we do, we, we, we do it all around. Uh, with, we try to keep it within a sort of 20-mile uh, radius of uh, the studio base. And uh, we get most things there. I mean, we go to there's some rivers, uh, the River Boyne that we go up to, which is about 50 miles away from where we are. Um, uh, but basically everything else is done in our little, um, our little playground uh, of County Wicklow, County Dublin, um it's it's all done there so we build a lot and of sets we build a lot I, of that's what i was saying yeah, yeah. yeah so we, we you know we built um uh, an inca for uh, king alia we built a, a sort of a, a castle uh, area we've taken a few 
um, farmsteads that have stone walls and then built on top of them and changed things around to build up um, both uh, the kind of approaches to cathedrals. And, and what we increasingly do is that the art department will do all of the designs for the visual effects. So we'll figure out, you know, what did Winchester Cathedral look like? What did uh, you know, this, this particular sort of castle? Um, so for that castle, we Michael Hurst, the screenwriter, had the idea that uh, the king had taken in, the English king had uh, taken over an old Roman ruin. So that was a great kind of thing to play with and to imagine, well, they've taken this Roman ruin, which wouldn't have been as quite as ruinous as it would be now, obviously, and they've sort of retrofitted it to their material culture of that time, but keeping a few things like that. We had a, um, a Roman bath in it, you know, imagining that there's a hot spring underneath um, and all of that kind of stuff. So most of the places are all within our our. Um, our area so it's uh, a lot of good visual effects and just trying to get the sense of architecture um, of the different places you must have a lot of interaction with the screenwriter himself what kind of issues come up that require major cooperation or even changes on the fly logistically when you're engaged and and trying to plot out say the next episode or the next segment in the production how how do you what kind of interaction do you have to have well what happens is that like all things you know our ambition always outstrips our resources uh, of course and the screenwriters are in the wonderful <laughs> position of being in a room with their either their keyboard or a piece of paper and uh you know there are no limits to their imagination and in a way that's fine and part of what my job is is to sort of take that i mean it it helps when you've got a good relationship a good working relationship so you take their sort of let's call them their sort of first drafts and then you say well how can we best do this we might not be able to get it all but what's the spirit of it and that's sometimes it as well you know what what's the essence of the scene what's the essence of the episode what are we really trying to sort of show here and then well how can we best show that and what resources do we have and it's always a bit of a battle for the resources but uh um, the you know uh, I think certainly history and MGM have been very much behind the show and they've been very supportive and they really try to help quite a bit. Um, so you know sometimes we have to go back and say, well, you know, if we want to do this, it's going to take more resources, and um, they they have been very good about that. Uh, but sometimes I have to go back to the writer and say, hey, it's absolutely impossible or, well, we can do it in one way, but we can't do it in that way. Um, so, for instance, it was quite interesting. He had, uh, I think in year two, he wanted quite a lot of ships out um, on, on a very practical sort of invasion kind of thing. And we we managed to build, we built two ships in the first year and we managed to build two more in the second year. And we found a few sort of uh, kind of Viking enthusiast clubs who had built their own smaller boats. That uh-huh. we, get, we get in for this sort of season and they, they um, join us in our adventures. Um, but some of the things that he he wanted to do, you know, were just absolutely impossible um, because then it gets into sort of things about safety and stuff like that. So, um, so then you just have to try and think of different ways of doing it. And the increasing um, 
sort of efficiency of visual effects are is helping a lot now, and we we can be more ambitious. Um, visual effects, I think, are a double-edged sword because if they're done badly, they look awful, and I think the the audience gets thrown out of the story. They yeah. they realize there's something wrong. But um, I would imagine that with visual effects, special effects, however you want to categorize them, with uh, computer simulations and modelings, you could probably get some, certainly some panoramic views that would show you uh, literally dozens of ships in the background that the average viewer would not be able to discern. Oh, and yes. See anything. Yeah, and that's exactly what we've done. You know, those so, sort of the first sort of, you know, eight or nine ships will be real. And then the ones in the background are comp- complete computer simulations. Right, right. So that's able to, we're able to achieve that now. You know. And but we will... It's we interesting, will... you know, even five or six years ago, we probably wouldn't have been able to do that. Uh, it's the, the pace it's moving on is quite amazing. We are discussing the production of the television show The Vikings from a uh, visual standpoint and from a staging standpoint with uh, production director and Emmy Award winning uh, designer, uh, Mr. Tom Conroy. We will be back with our final segment after these words. Please don't go away. We'll be right back. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace to speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein, and we are talking to Tom Conroy, who is the production set designer for the award-winning TV series, The Vikings, which has a very successful run on the History Channel. And one of the topics that we've been talking about is the actual nuts and bolts of putting this type of a production together, both in the field and from the uh, drawing board, if you will, the interfacing between the writers and Tom himself, who's responsible this, for the sets. Tom, you were mentioning during the break that, that the actual uh, material goods themselves that are featured in the production have a very interesting backstory. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and it, well, again, it was a slightly logistical thing because when we went looking to, uh, when the project got the green light, we went, okay, let's go and find what, what's out there in the sort of European prop houses that are, could, you know, pass for Vikings. There was very little uh, uh, stuff. And um, we also realized that if we had to get stuff from Europe, we would be, you know, charged quite a lot and it would be a lot of transport because um, you either have to come from London or Rome or Paris uh, which are quite far away or, or uh, Prague so we decided to um, try and commission and make as many as we could so we had some contacts that we've developed over the years in India uh, with uh, various crafts people there so one of our team, um, a wonderful set decorator called Crispian Salas, he went over and spent about six weeks in India um, with our designs, our drawings and references. Uh, and these would be measured things and sometimes little models or um, little uh, uh, sort of uh, perhaps technical drawings of, of things that we needed. And this was everything from beds to uh, benches to sort of, chairs to tables to every possible kind of thing as well as all the small we had lists upon list upon list of the smaller items cooking pots cooking utensils all that kind of stuff and he went and commissioned the, the various people and they all the things got built and they were then shipped back in containers it takes about two months to to get back from india so the timing was quite tight and in the meanwhile, the more specialized things like looms, one of the other things research that we found out was that nearly every home would have their own weaving loom um, for making their own um, uh, clothing. So we thought that was a nice sort of touch to have. So every house you go into, 
you sometimes you notice it more than other times has its own uh, weaving loom. So we made those uh, in Ireland, and we also got a weaver to uh, weave them at different sort of levels. And uh, we'd also have them that they could be uh, swapped around for if you're going back to the same place. Uh, if you actually look at it carefully, the the, the pattern gets more and more finished as the uh, as the season goes on. Um, so little things like that. Um, and then there were a lot of very specialist things. Like in the first season, there was a very particular thing about a, a compass. Uh, so we got a, a prop maker. We had how many prop makers? We had about four full-time prop makers uh, in in Ireland making these more smaller things. And one woman called Bob, she did all of the kind of more wooden things and the statues and things like that, the more carving things. And another chap, uh, Graham, did the things that we knew we could if we uh, needed to um, replicate to, to model. So he, uh, he would take things like the sort of uh, dragon heads and make uh, copies of those and uh, and make them in a, a type of resin plastic that could be then reused all over the place. So it was a huge logistical thing because absolutely there are so many, uh, some so much uh, uh, goods and chattels, so to speak. Um, and then once it comes back, it, it all has to be sort of sorted. Uh, we put into a kind of a, a big warehouse and uh, it's all put on shelves and then taken as we need it for each scene. And uh, we do cheat a little bit. Some things will obviously appear a couple of times in right. various things, but the hero characters will have their own, you know, special special things. And then, of course, when in season one, when Ragnar wins over the evil Earl Harlston, we had to change all of those settings around as well. Um, and and also, as I said earlier, as we as the series progresses and they get more and more, they travel more and more and do more and more commerce. Uh, again, we're bringing more more things in. So it's a sort of it's a, another um, aspect of the whole thing, as well as the physical sets. It's what's in the the, the sets matters Speak. great because, in a sense, it's the last little detail that you see. Speaking about the uh, the conflicts and the uh, various subjugations and the victories and obviously the the battle scenes which are just phenomenal and so many things going on at the same time a lot of gore a lot of blood and guts um how how are you able to stage that and how complicated is that and what are the steps involved in in setting up these phenomenal battle scenes Yes, I mean, they're, they're a real collaboration between uh, uh, stunt coordinators, the director, uh, the camera uh, people, um, the producers, because the producers have to kind of, you know, allocate certain resources to these things, and especially in time, because battle scenes actually, for you know, they take a lot of time. Say you've got a sort of uh, perhaps a two-minute battle sequence that might take three four days to to do whereas a two minute dialogue sequence we would probably film that in half a day so it's it's a we have to be um um so that that's something that uh, negotiations goes on with uh, michael hurst the writer about of course uh, too many battle scenes or can we do you know do that but we're trying to sort of you know not have uh you know noises off not sort of say oh there was a battle in uh Oops, Anna. Um we're, we're trying to show uh, as much as possible. Sure. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it's quite clever, you know, that you're only sort of, we do see the aftermath of quite a few battles. Um, but 
it, it's a real logistical um, kind of collaboration. But there's one funny thing about, say, the shields that we've done. Um, so we, we looked at old uh, references and uh, it's scant enough. So, you know, we had to make intelligent guesses about the kind of particular designs and, and embellishments that would be on the, on the certain shields. Um, and then the other thing that uh, we then wanted to kind of uh, make sure we had colours. Uh, and there was a, a, a fun thing. I was trying to think, well, how can we, how can we kind of allocate colours to people? And right. in Ireland, we have um, football teams, Gaelic football teams. Sure. Hurling. It's a traditional sport over here. And each county has its own colours. So I thought, well, actually, they're actually quite good. And uh, so I literally took all the colours from the counties and they are on all the Viking shields. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all about Ireland ultimately, right? It, ultimately, yeah. So there's one battle at the <laughs> beginning of um, season two and it literally is Dublin versus Kilkenny. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to let that out too publicly. <laughs> I mean, people don't really need to know that. Uh, no. But that that's very interesting. And speaking of that, I'm wondering if you could give us an example of some of the really problematic issues that may have emerged on one or two scenes that really required a tremendous amount of, let's call it engineering or logistical coordination to make something happen when it really looked like it couldn't be done? Um, well, I suppose there's one particular thing was... Uh, um it's, it's, it's a, at the end of season one, there's a, an episode set in Uppsala, um, which is a, uh, a real place in, in Sweden. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a whole kind of uh, ritualistic, it was a temple, and it was a, a festival that's Uppsala. And this festival happened every nine years, and this really happened. And uh, uh, they would sacrifice nine um, sort of sets of living things. And so it'd be nine horses, nine cattle, nine goats, and also nine humans. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it was very, very. We, there's an account from a monk, Aidan of Brennan, uh, so Aidan of Bremen in Germany. He wrote an account about 200 years later. So he's obviously referring to somebody else. So it was very scant information. So that was. Um, Something I mean, it was logistical about how we could do it, but it was also about like there was very very little to go on. Um, so, in a, in a sense, we got involved. The art department got involved in uh, inventing almost the whole ritual, and even into the sort of going into well, what sort of sounds would be played, and then thinking, well, if there have sounds, what sort of instruments? And again, going on whatever the, the little bits of research that are existing, but there's very little. So we, as I said, we, 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 it's a bit of conjecture. Um, but that was, I, I thought, I particularly, I, I think that was my favorite sort of episode out of the whole series because it was a slightly different pace and uh, slow down mm-hmm. things. And it was also, Michael is very, very interested in a, in a sort of deeper level. One of the things he's interested in is... Um, uh, the role of religion in in people's lives, and it, not in a sort of specific, you know, Catholics against Protestants or anything like that, but in a much more general sort of sense, and and in the big sweep of history and in the cultural sense, and in a way, one of the themes of the Vikings is about that they were almost the last pagans in Europe, and uh, you could yeah. look at it 
that uh, you know the Christians are coming north and north and north and squeezing them, squeezing them, um, and uh, that they were you know I mean they they remained pagan even after say the Irish were on another kind of periphery of Europe, uh, they had converted you know obviously a couple of hundred years earlier. Um, so it is interesting to think of it as a clash of cultures in that way. And uh, he has uh, Athelstan the monk, who then becomes one of his gang, uh, um, one of Ragnar's sort of coterie. And that's the kind of way for our eyes and ears to kind of be with, with them and to have a sort of a cultural similarity within their, their world. Because I must admit, when I first read the script, it was... Right. Uh, almost felt, gosh, you know, I have, and, and started researching about the, the Vikings. I felt I have more in common with the Taliban than I do with the Vikings. It was, <laughs> it was very, very alien. So <laughs> right, of course, I think yeah. part of our job is to try and sort of, you know, bring these aliens into your living room, so to speak, and, and to, uh, but, you may not agree with them. Or, right. Or, but yeah. you have to. But they do have a culture. Them. They do have, you know, beliefs. They do. They were genuine uh, about these yeah. things. So it's a way of showing showing that. So that that I think was not so much a logistical challenge that that temple at Uppsala, but it was more of a um, a kind of staging challenge. How how we would do it. You know? Do you have on staff or at least at at, at the ready, if you will? Uh, historians or archaeologists or people who have specialized in uh, Norse archaeology or yes, Norse history? We, you have. We, do. we do, Hannah. I should have mentioned this chap earlier. Uh, we have a chap called Justin Pollard, and uh, he is uh-huh. a historian. Yeah. Um, uh, I think he's out of Cambridge uh, University, and he um, consults on the show. Uh, so he, he would mainly work with, with Michael, um, and sometimes we would have some uh, uh, interaction, but he's mainly doing the sort of the, the broader sweep of the history. Um, and he does get involved in the material thing a little bit, but uh, it's less 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 detail. Um, so he's more involved in the the overall uh, who, what, where, and when. Uh, and so the sort of the, the the general thrust and the themes exactly. and the movements and and that sort yeah. of thing. But the material culture, I imagine that's uh, you've sort of become a, a minor expert on this sort of thing because yeah, you have one, done the one, research. Exactly. One becomes in these various things. You, 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 I have, uh, I'm in my office at the moment and I have got two bookshelves full of books about the Tudors and I've got another um, <laughs> bookshelf full of books about the uh, the. Um, uh, well, bookcases actually, not shelves. Bookcases uh, full of stuff about the Vikings, you know. So it's uh, my house is crammed with books, and I still like books because you know I, I use the internet uh, a lot, and I love traveling to museums, and I love museums who let you take photographs uh, because that's right. fantastic. You can get in, and, you know. There's nothing about seeing something for real. Is you just get a much better understanding of it, you know. And even then, when you look at other references, it makes more sense. Um, and if you ever get uh, sick and tired of production design, you could be a scholar and work at a university. Oh, I doubt it. I don't think. I mean, <laughs> I, I, my knowledge is like a magpie. It's you know, it's it's plucked here and there. It's oh, not yes. uh, sort of structured as a, a proper historian or a proper archaeologist would be. You know? it, but, uh, of course. Uh, 
Of course, but uh, what it was, so what are you working on now? How first of all, how long do you you're saying uh, you're going to do another season of the Vikings? Yes, I'm not going to do it this year because I've I've gone on to I've I've gone on to a, 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 at the end of last year I went to uh, onto a different film um, and uh, so I'm currently working on something else at the moment, uh, but I can't really say what it is. It's a very early. It's a similar sort of stage. Um, to what I was describing the Vikings when they were sort of doing a feasibility study. So I'm working for a few weeks doing a feasibility study about uh, a really fascinating series, which... Is uh, it also historical in nature? Well, it's slightly different. I, um, it's kind of something historical, but if sort of set now, if um, a kind of conjectured history, so to speak. Um, Detective work, I guess, huh? Of some sort. Uh, no, it's kind of um, it's about something um, a culture that has gone away. But imagining, oh, if that culture has actually stayed uh, ah, and still existing now in the present day. Um, well, a kind of parallel history almost. Well, we will look forward to that that next venture, and hopefully, the feasibility will end up on the positive side of the ledger. I want to thank my special guest, uh, Mr. Tom Conroy, whose latest uh, production design effort has been very successful for the History Channel and the production of the Vikings. Tom, thanks very much for appearing on the program. A pleasure, and thank you for having me. Best of luck. And until next time, this is Joe Schildenrein, and we hope you join us next week for another adventure of Indiana Jones myth, reality, and 21st century archaeology. Thank you very much, and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 